Our passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11. In your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1007. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. I will read the first three verses. And then after that, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 32 and pick up there to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now picking up in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, We praise you for the time you've given us, that you are in control of all events, that you are sovereign, that you've brought us together here to worship the Savior, that there are those here who have been brought out of darkness into your marvelous light, who weren't your people, who are now your people, to proclaim your excellencies. And Father, we recognize also there may be some among us who don't know you. Yet, Father, we know that your word is living and abiding, that flesh will pass away like the flower of the field, but your word remains forever. So, Father, we pray and ask that you would grant abundant grace to our pastor to rightly handle this word, to preach it, with all boldness and clarity, the gospel, the truth, that Christ would be made much of, that he would decrease and that Christ would increase. Give us eyes to see, open the eyes of the blind, give ears to hear. Father, do an amazing work through your spirit, we pray. Give grace to us. Give grace to Cody. We ask this all in Jesus' name and give thanks. Amen. You may be seated.
Well, we find ourselves continuing this week as we began last week to look more closely upon the grace of God and how that grace is worked out in Scripture and how we can understand that grace to be applied even to our life as well. We took as our passage last week is a launching point, if you will, Hebrews chapter 11, and we looked at the life of Abraham. We continue this morning in Hebrews 11, and as Brant has just read, we uh, look at the mention of one man in chapter 11, uh, around verse 32, that being the life of Samson. Now, I'm going to assume that many do know about the life of Samson, but I'm also going to invite you even now, if you have a pew Bible, turn there. If you have your own Bible, you can, I'm sure, find your way, but turn to Judges chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 213, and we have four chapters in the book of Judges that tells us the story of Samson's life. In fact, out of those four chapters, one is really more about his parents, and three is about his life. Four very short chapters that chronicle a man's life, a story that reads more like some New York Times editorial on a billionaire playboy than upon a man called and equipped by God to lead his people. In fact, to even even spend time reading his story almost makes one feel dirty. As if you've read something you really shouldn't have been reading of this man's exploits into sin. At least you might find yourself quite embarrassed to even think about the type of and, and the way that sin is described in three short chapters of a man's life. The fourth beginning with how he actually got onto this earth. We're not going to answer every question that pops up in these uh, four chapters. There are too many to answer even this morning. To be sure, I think that uh, Samson's riddle that he throws out uh, for his companions in chapter 14 is a pretty good indication of his entire life. It is a riddle. Uh, There seems to be more uh, difficulty in understanding and explaining his life than there is clarity in seeing it for what it is. Uh, We find a man that uh, shows up uniquely gifted by God and one who departs. And we hear nothing about the man again until we found ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. And the question that lies between a beginning and an end of his life and then Hebrews chapter 11 is, how did we, how did we get there? What on earth happened that we didn't read about? I read the story of Judges 13 through 16, some might say, I didn't see anything that should get us to Hebrews chapter 11. And one that is commended for his faith. Judges chapter 13 through 16. We won't take this in uh, the greatest depth as I mentioned, but let's look at it a little more closely. Chapter 13 verse 1 is where we must begin. And it's what sets the scene for us. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the land, into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. You have a nation, the nation of Israel, the people of God, who have continued their track record of sinful tendencies, worshiping false idols, giving themselves into sin and rebellion against God. They have done it yet again. They are, if you will, a, a nation in captivity, with a need for a savior. 
God supplies. Verse 2, we find the parents of Samson. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. He had a wife. His wife, if you haven't already clued into what God likes to do with miraculous things, was barren and had no children. Desiring children, supposedly, wanting them, surely, angel of the Lord appears and says, you're barren, you've not born children, but you will conceive and bear a son. Now they describe this man of God, this angel describes to this woman the nature of this man, that he's going to be uh, set aside for the work of the Lord. He's going to be a Nazarite. We had time this morning, we could go to Numbers chapter 6, and there in Numbers chapter 6, we would see an entire chapter helping us understand what a Nazarite is. And to put it in short, he was a man set aside for the work of God. There was a number of things that they could not do. One was they had to allow their hair to grow long. Another was they could not touch any sort of of wine or drink of that nature, which you'll see even there in verse 4. Be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. That was the requirement for the mother because that was going to be the requirement for the son as well. Verse 7, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. He was going to be set apart, separated from everything else in order to be devoted to the service of God. He was going to be a ruler, a judge, that's where we're at in the book, a judge for the people of God. He was going to lead them. And that's exactly what happens. This man is born of a barren woman. This child grows. And we see, verse 25, the beginnings of God using him. In verse 25 of chapter 13, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The Spirit of the Lord began to use him. Now, what I think is so interesting about the book of Samson is we have no indication here of this man's size. But if I say the name Samson, surely everybody thinks here six foot eight, three twenty four percentage body weight, you know, long hair, tan muscles growing out of his muscles. We don't have any of that. Kind of like to think of him as five, nine, one hundred and sixty five pounds. We don't, we don't have any indication that his strength was displayed in a physical sense, and yet that's where we immediately go. But surely his strength was given him by God. Interestingly enough, uh, the strength is not seen, apparently at least not divulged for us, in his boyhood and his growing up. There's no indication that he was offered full-ride scholarships to do this or that but simply that he grew up within his family and he was given to the cause God had called him to be, to be a man of God. The Lord blessed him, verse 24. You have to wonder, uh, and and there's the, the blank space there between verse 25 and chapter 14 that is filled with thoughts. What happened? How did we go from verse 25 of a man blessed by the Lord, raised in in a God-fearing home to 
This young man now down into the Philistine land and looking upon and desiring this Philistine wife. Well, who knows? The enemy uh, has no timetable in terms of which he might use the desires and sinful tendencies of ours and bear fruit many years even from now. But here we have this young man now down in Timnah, verse 1 of chapter 14. He sees one of the daughters of the Philistines. He wants her. Notice he doesn't say in verse 3, go get her for me because she is a woman, I believe, that would help me and assist me in the calling God has upon my life. There's no indication of her following the Lord. It's she's, She looks good to me. She's right in my eyes. She's pretty, and that's all he can see. His parents have no desire for such things. They speak about these things. And we have one of the confusing aspects of the entirety of the life of Samson. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. We see here the overriding grace of God upon our unwise decisions. It was not wrong for him to take a Philistine woman, but it was very unwise. Because they were commanded not to for the purpose of giving themselves to the idols of their enemies. Here he was a ruler. Here he was to be set apart by God. And he was going to defile himself with a, a part of his household, his wife, one flesh, of which would be worshipping other gods. First John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 may describe for us in three verses the entirety of this chapter. We're told in First John chapter 2, verse 15, I'll read it for you. You're welcome to turn there if you like. But it summarizes what is to follow in chapter 14 here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life is not from the Lord, not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Your translation may say the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Chapter 14, 1 through 4, we see very clearly his wrong desire, the lust of the eyes. We see it in verse 3. We see it in verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. We also see the lust of the flesh. He did his, his desires. That's chapter 14, verse 8 through 9. We see his strength displayed for the first time in that it's a strength not innate of himself, but of the Spirit of the Lord upon him when this lion comes roaring at him and he tears the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. The carcass is consumed or overwhelmed by bees. They create a hive. There's honey. And sometime later in his return across it, he knows he's not to touch death. That's part of the Nazarite vow. And yet he does. He reaches in the lust of the flesh. And he takes of it and he gives it to his father and mother as well. Once one has given themselves to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, is pride of life anything but an add-on, a cherry on top. And sure enough, that's what happens in verse 10 and following. 
his pride that he could display this riddle, his pride that he might be able to gain uh, what was seen at that time, great wealth even, 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And so he puts this riddle forward to 30 different companions. You do the math. He's going to have a number of changes of clothes. He's going to be a a fairly well-dressed man. He's going to be able to walk about with great pride. And yet, his weakness for the flesh and his eyes is his undoing. And his pride is thwarted. His new wife nags and presses and weeps and connives and conjoles and manipulates until she gets out of him the answer to the riddle. And it is not as if at that point he says, ah, I might repent here, but no, God even then uses his wrong decisions and errant ways We see another time the strength is used in that God puts his spirit upon him, causes him to have great strength. He goes down to Ashkelon, verse 19 of chapter 14, strikes down 30 men in the town, takes their spoil, gives their garments to those who have told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. The delight of even his new wife, his lust for her could not satiate his anger. He leaves his wife and his wife is then wed to the best man. This is a horrible story. And we're not even halfway done. Chapter 15, verse 1 through 16, verse 15. If if you want to put one title across the entirety of all those verses, you might just say, Samson is unbound in sin. Samson is unbound in sin. Uh, he, he, is, he is all over the place. There are parts where we see one, uh, where we see it, the Spirit of God rush upon him. But then we, we see him doing things with the blessing of God in his strength upon him that are not blessed by God. As if one Philistine woman was not enough, he goes down and finds a prostitute in the beginning of chapter 16. She's not enough. And so he finds another woman, a third, in chapter 16, verse 4, this woman, Delilah. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 comes to mind. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? And we find him... In chapter 16, verse 16, all the way at the very end of his flirtations with sin, the consequences are about to come upon him. The cows are coming home, if you will. This woman Delilah does and plays upon his his weaknesses of character as his wife did before him and gets out from him the secret of of his strength and power and that is he is a Nazarite as seen clearly by his long locks, his full head of hair. And she finally has it shaved. And in the shaving of that, he is no longer strong enough to overpower his enemies and he's taken 
into captivity. Eyes that once desired to look upon things that are wrong, he no longer has in his head. Strength by which he could pursue his own lust of the flesh, he no longer has the ability to do. Pride has been is gone as he's in captivity and now a laughing stock of the people that he was supposed to be ruling against. Samson, flirting with the temptation to sin and give away his secret, is blind to the clutch of sin he's already been ensnared by. I find it interesting that that he still has any strength at all. His hair is the only thing left of which he's not violated as a Nazarite. He's touched the wrong thing. He's defiled himself in multiple ways. The cutting of his hair is the last remaining link to his call to serve God. You've got to, you've got to wonder about all the people in his life. You have to wonder about his nation, what they're thinking about this man. Uh, if, if they had a newspaper and he was across the newspaper again, you, you have to think that every person goes, I, I've got to unsubscribe for this thing. All they can do is report on Samson. I'm tired of this guy. You have to think of his mother. Proverbs 31, verse 2 and 3, sounds like something his mother would say. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Certainly man is the central figure in our story, but even many women have given or are giving their strength to men in sinful ways like this. There, there's been sayings that have, have lost their way along the way in the English language. I pulled a few of them this morning that I hadn't heard or heard from in a while. A watched pot never boils. This is one I didn't know. Don't buy a pig in a poke, whatever that means. Well, here's one that, that desperately needed to be asked to Samson. Have you no shame, man? Apparently not. Chapter 16, verse 16 and 21. The sin that Satan, that, uh, that Samson allowed to smolder has burst into uncontrollable flames. A life is now limited. He no longer has eyesight. He's in captivity. And yet, verse 22 through 31 of chapter 16, we see a life limited used for a greater purpose. We're told that his hair begins to grow again. Verse 22, we know the power is not in his hair. The power is in the spirit of the Lord being upon him. Something happens. We're not sure what it is. Other than what Hebrews 11 tells us. But we find himself now as the laughing stock of the Philistines. Who knows how long it has taken place. I've never grown long locks. I don't know what, what the definition is of long hair in the Bible. When is hair long enough to be a Nazarite? I don't know. So could we say a year, two? I don't know. Now it's very long hair, nine months. Something's happened. Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, verse 24 of chapter 16, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. 
They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held by him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. And now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Those men weren't. Those men and women weren't there by accident. They didn't come to a party because they didn't invite, all been invited. God in his sovereign decree is going to use the, the, a, a man who is limitless seemingly in his sin, that due to his limitless nature of sin has been limited by the consequences of sin in order to display his glory and destroy his enemies. Samson calls to the Lord. And I think this prayer is so unique. Because there's not the prayer we would think. Oh Lord, give me strength that I might do what is right. Oh Lord, give me strength to, to, to walk out repentance from my pride. Oh Lord, no. Oh Lord, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may avenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Let me list a few of the sins of Samson. I'm sure you can see them quite well. Lust. Multiple times of adultery, murder, revenge, dishonoring of his parents, abandonment of his wife, anger. Some of the consequences, he loses his first wife to his best man. His once father-in-law and his once wife are actually burned to death by the Philistines due to his retaliation upon the Philistines, due to Samson's mistakes. He loses his strength, he loses his reputation, he loses his eyes, he loses the trust of his nation. The consequences in a few minutes remove the ability to enjoy all his sinful desires or any desires at all. The insatiable desire to see, touch, take pride in the wrong things causes the loss of ability to use his sight, touch, and pride. Let me ask you questions. This morning, a few of them, before we look upon the grace of God and the life of Samson. Do you know the quota of your sin before the consequences are beyond your control? Do you know the quota of your sin before the consequences are beyond your control? Some of us may need to do some real work in how we think and give ourselves to dealing with a sin. So let's take some stock of how we're doing now. How well are you thinking about your sin? Maybe the better question is, is how wrongly are we thinking about our sin? How do you think about Samson's life? I'm going to be very honest. I had two thoughts about Samson's life. And after a moment or two of reflection, I realized both of them are wrong. Here are mine. Yeah, at least I'm better than Samson. Wrong. Second response. How did he get in there? Wrong. Pride. My pride being better than Samson is 
much like the pride of Samson. A response of jealousy that God would redeem such a life is a wrong response as well. Both responses show a misunderstanding of sin that is innate to everyone born of woman and also a misunderstanding of his grace that covers all of our sin. How do you think about Samson? It may be a great uh, measurement of how you think about God's grace and how you think of man's sin. Let's look upon the grace of God in Samson's life. That's the topic we're studying, if you will, for the month. One cannot speak of God's grace and not reflect upon the sin of men and women. It is in the darkest times of the heinous and horrible nature of man's sin where God's grace shines the brightest. I've got a number of ways that God's grace is shown in Samson's life. You might jot these down. Here's the first one. That God has his people upon a leash. And there is an end to that leash. Uh, Samson seems to believe he can play the field and have the fun and enjoy the pleasures of sin And not understand that there are for a season. And God in his divine mercy and grace limits him. He does not allow it to go uncontrollable. Another way is he uses Samson's sin. He uses Samson's sin. He he gets Samson... To where he may or should have been all along. Which is in the heart of the Philistines. Defending his people. Here's another. God in his grace. Requires that he has the final say. Not Samson's mistakes. What a, what a wasted life. If you end with him. Eyes gouged out. Grinding corn, laughing stock, God has the final say, not Samson's mistakes. Here's a grace that may not be seen as one. God graciously removes the sight, strength, and even spirit of the Lord from Samson. Whoa, whoa, whoa. how is that a grace? Because, because Samson was abusing every one of those things. I think maybe uh, chapter 16, verse 20 might be the bottom, if you will, of the life of Samson. Look at it with me. Read it. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Blinded in the depth of his sin. God graciously removes his sight, which he used wrongly, his strength, which he often used wrongly, and even the Spirit of God upon him. How is the grace of God also in Samson's life? He's a life used by God. Why is he even in Scripture? Because he's a life used by God. He's using it this morning. He's used it this week in my life. Maybe he's using him in your life. He's a life, here's grace, that finished well. He's a life that finished well. 
Here's another. God will only allow so much unrepentant sin before he graciously intervenes. If you're here this morning struggling with a particular sin, it may be of a sexual nature, it may be not of one. It may be that you are repentant of your sin this morning, it may be that you are not repentant of your sin this morning. But you must know this. That God is currently actively providing a unique type of grace to either walk out the repentance you are doing, you are walking in, or to turn from your sin in repentance. It is not too late if you're sitting here this morning. I I don't see anybody looking at me because they can't see me, hoping to hear me, but they can't see me because their eyes have been gouged out due to the consequences of their sin. You're here this morning walking on two legs. God has not seen fit to take those legs out from underneath you because you will un, you will not repent in your sin. Some of you know Bill Bushhouse. He's been in a wheelchair for many, many, many years. He will tell you that God took his legs due to his repent, unrepentance and sin. You're not here this morning in that way. You have time. His grace is abundant. You can turn. But the longer you delay to use that grace in its current form, the greater the potential consequences that you will not enjoy. Let's think now about Christ. The wonder of Christ sent by a gracious God for sinners. Maybe it comes to mind, I don't know if it came to mind already at this point for you, but the man that came to mind as I was thinking about Samson's life was the thief upon the cross. Uh, A life given seemingly in waste up to the very last end. And yet a life that was redeemed by the work of Christ. A life that because of that moment, even the one of the final few moments of that man's life upon the cross, in faith, believing in Jesus Christ, was saved for all of eternity. If you don't like Samson's life, if you don't like the thief and the cross life, then you really don't like and understand the grace of God. Because otherwise you're giving yourself to thinking that I must do a bunch of things in order to receive that grace. They did nothing and yet they were given that grace. It is amazing and it is free. So when Christ died upon that cross and he said, it is finished, he meant that it was finished. He meant the atoning sacrifice for sin was finished. He meant the power of sin in the believer was finished. And so when he provides for you the grace to be saved, he also provides for you to walk in obedience to him, to walk in love for him. The perfection of Jesus Christ upon that cross when he said, it is finished, meant That his sacrifice for your sin was perfect. That God would accept in your place his perfection and forgive you your sin. All of it, even if it's the last thing you do, is to cry out, my God, my God, save me from my sin. I trust Christ. It's enough to cover all of that. God is gracious and he is forgiving. And because of the perfection of Christ, he has secured the forgiveness that we so desperately needed from our sin. And that forgiveness is still upon you.
And yes, when we sin, we are to repent of our sin. Yes, we are to confess our sin. As 1 John 1, 9 tells us. We're confessing that it is wrong. But the forgiveness granted through Christ is still continually extended. We see it afresh. I, I was struck even this morning as... As I read a commentary, Matthew Henry had one word that, that connected for me a thought. And that was Samson going down to the Philistines to get his first wife. Does it all wrong. But what we should understand is, Christ did the same thing. He, he went to the Philistine harlots, you and me, and he bought for himself a bride. A bride that he should have had nothing to do with. One that was completely impure. One that was holy. One that was not of the heavenly kingdom. And he secured for us, secured for himself, a bride and purified us to be a holy and pure bride. Samson did it wrong, but it it causes us to look forward and say, brothers and sisters, we're the harlot of the Philistines that Christ came and joined himself to. We're the adulterer that Christ sought after, laid down his life for, and drew to himself in pure and holy love. We're no different than Samson, and we're really no different than the Philistines, save the amazing grace of God. That's what makes all the difference. It isn't that you were walking into church this morning. It isn't that you were born in a Christian family and haven't done some Samsonite things in your life if you're a young person. It's the difference that is the grace of God. So have you experienced that grace? Have you come to the point where you recognize that you have to have your sin dealt with by a God who forgives sin or are you locked into thinking that you must get rid of some of your sin before you look to that grace it doesn't work that way you can't you can't spend a life like that you were born in sin you, you're indelibly marked by it and only Christ can remove it and make you clean and all he asks is that you would trust him put your faith in him Look to him and be saved. And the scriptures tell us you shall be. We listen to all sorts of music in my home. And I'm going to conclude with a song this morning. And no, I won't be singing it. But I will be quoting it. There's a ministry over in Scotland called 20 Schemes. I recommend it to you. It's a ministry that is looking to advance the name of Christ across the entirety of Scotland. And one of the things that they had uh, some people do that are part of this ministry is to write some music and some songs. And there's one that they wrote called Flee to Sin, Run to Jesus. I'm not going to read to you the entirety of the song, but I highly recommend it. I'm going to read to you three stanzas. And it is, I think, a fitting conclusion to this thought of Samson's life and maybe maybe our life that at times has reflected Samson's life and yet the grace that we find in God for our daily war with sin. There is grace for the daily war with sin for the battles that rage within my heart. 
I am held in my father's everlasting arms. He's my shield from the devil's fiery darts. There's a refuge for every lustful thought. From old habits enticing me away. When I fear my addictions won't be overcome. There is hope through Christ's resurrection day. There is power in the finished work of Jesus. To change helpless sinners just like me. There's contentment where nothing else can satisfy. So I'll flee from my sin to Christ the Lord. And put my faith in the promise of his word. Well, that's available to you if you're a Christian. That we can walk out our repentance. We can walk out the the opportunity that he provides for us in Christ to flee from our sin and trust that grace yet again. Let's do that well this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to open your script, open your word, to look upon the scriptures. We're uncomfortable to, to even think about Samson's life. I am. It hits too close to home. We see ourselves oftentimes in the mirror more likely in Samson's life than others, and we don't like that mirror. And yet, as the song says, behind a frowning face is a smiling providence. Father, we're grateful to you for your graciousness toward us, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And that death has and does on a daily basis provide for us the grace to love you, to obey you, to seek after you, to turn from our sin. We're grateful, Father, that the turning from our sin is not that which saved us, but Christ saved us. And the fruit being the turning from our sin. How could you love such sinful people if it was not through Christ and your grace that you would choose to place your love upon us. Father, when we think about your grace this week, this past week, even this coming weeks in August, it's le- it should leave us with nothing other than a thought of humility. A spirit of gratefulness. One that cries, worthy are you and you alone. To receive honor and glory and power. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to use us. We desire and plead that you would use us this week. Even our, even our sin. That you would not allow it as you promised to have the last word, but you would use it for your good, your glory. We're thankful, Father, that you are a good God. And you do good things. Father, give us an increased hatred for our sin. Help us to understand what it means to fear the Lord. Father, we approach now at the table where we will spend just a few moments contemplating and remembering and thinking about 
the death of Jesus Christ, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for us. And we're so grateful, Father, to be reminded of that. May it be a grace upon our church as we spend this time together. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.